right, friends. Welcome to the next episode of Professional Development. My name is Jim Mares, and I teach 11th grade English in Boston, Massachusetts. Today, I'm really excited to have an old friend on the show, uh, Marcus Luther, who, in addition to this being your inaugural episode, you're also going to be taking over some hosting duties. So I was really excited for you to reach out. Yeah, excited to jump in with this. Uh, Loved listening to the first episode and really uh, jazzed to be a part of this. All right. Um, So let's start with just kind of let people get to know you. Uh, Talk us us through your teaching background and your pathway a little bit. Yeah. So uh, for those who don't know, I I share with uh, Jimmy and Brandon uh, coming through Teach for America and going through Arkansas and uh, same with Jimmy. But uh, one of the weird things about my backstory is that I'm like this rare kid who knew exactly what I wanted to do from fifth grade on. I actually had an English teacher, uh, fifth grade teacher, sorry, uh, Mrs. Walker, uh, shout out there, who just along with being an incredibly influential teacher in my life was told me uh, at the end of the year that I could really find a path in teaching English uh, if I wanted to going forward. And I just kind of stuck with that. And instead of changing like what I expected, would happen that, you know, you're a little kid that you're going to change your ideas, that conviction hardened over time and became more purposeful. So it was quite surreal to, when I started teaching, like I had spent over a decade, you know, thinking about what this journey would result in. And it was incredibly meaningful to step into the classroom for the first time, living out that dream that had been building for so long. So I am like, as excited about my identity as a teacher, as anyone you'll meet, I love teaching uh, and Teach for America was the easy, the quickest way into the classroom. Uh, and I love also the title of this podcast being Professional Development, because I actually I think if I'm correct, Jimmy, yeah. we met at a professional development session. We, I was a did. first year, first year English teacher and super desperate for anything, trying to learn, trying to grow. And into the room walks Jimmy, the second year English teacher who just cool as a cucumber, knows everything about no, everything, no, no. like Messiah <laughs> stepping down from the mountain. Like oh, come we on. were like I was talking with Brian and other first year English teachers. We were so desperate. And the second year English teachers, like you, Will, Kate, I remember so many. We were just clinging to everything you said at the time. So that was my starting point with you. I know we've had many wow. conversations since, uh, <laughs> but like, I just, full disclosure, like I had no is, idea about that. What was no, that like? Uh, that was like, that was, like uh, one of the TFA. Days? One of those, like, yeah, the TFA PDs or learning team elements. in learning Learn- team. Yeah. Cause you guys wow. would share your, like what's working in our classroom and we're just struggling right out of the gate. And it was just, we were just desperate. Uh, so uh, I'm excited to have these conversations now formally. I know we've had our own journeys since then, but uh, that was my starting point with you with professional development. Uh, as far as teaching. That's so funny. Yeah. So I was in a different part of the state, uh, kind of rural uh, Southwest, South Central Arkansas and Fordyce, uh, go Redbugs. Yeah. Uh, and then moved uh, to Northeast Arkansas to work both in Earl and then when uh, to be closer to my now my wife, Rachel. Uh, and high school English teacher in all those roles and served on a variety of leadership uh, roles in those schools. And we'll talk more about things that we saw in those positions, similar to you, where I think you talked about in your first episode that how grateful you are for the different context you've seen, especially in a coaching role. And for me, I feel like being able to see in what a lot of people would stereotype as the same thing in rural education in Arkansas Mm -hmm. I saw three different schools, different leadership styles, different uh, 
values and operating systems and different students. And there were patterns, but there are also a lot of differences. And I think that's important to not just box them all into the same type of education experience as we're yeah. quite aware, like yeah. inside of Mark tree, like that's a very different experience uh, also. So yeah. I'm really grateful for the ability to see different school contexts in terms of how it's helped inform my own worldview as a teacher and my identity as an educator and also my vision of what you know we both want for students going forward but then uh the as life happens uh my first son was born and we decided to be closer to family and support systems so we made the cross-country trek uh and then realized we would be making that trek uh in a car driving across the country in the middle of a pandemic with a nine-month-old so uh obviously lots of stories entailed from that and then arrived in Salem, Oregon, uh, in the, one of the, the second biggest school district in the state with 40,000 students. My high school is over 2000 students, wow. uh, and started this year off teaching, uh, on, on remote learning on zoom. Uh, so I'm in a talking about context, a brand new context. That's completely dissimilar to what I experienced, but that's where I am now, uh, in year going into year 10, of teaching high school English. And I could not be more excited about that role and that work. I love that, man. That's, I forgot that you, um, for some reason, I thought that you had gotten out to Oregon before the pandemic, but you moved, you moved during the pandemic. Wow. I, I so, did my, yeah, my interview for the position was over zoom. I, I was, it was a yeah. weird thing at the time and then it became very normal, but yeah, right. it was, uh, middle of all of that so it was a surreal time to be making that kind of life change yeah no i've um i am very flattered first of all i i've certainly uh my probably my thoughts and my skill sets and and generally the quality of my advice in my second year uh is not as good as maybe it probably seemed at the time but i'm glad it was helpful and yeah no i've you know i think you and i i'm excited that you're on the podcast here because you and I have kind of run, you know, in sort of, um, I don't know what the correct word is, like uh, tangential circles, you know, like yeah. we've always been sort of in similar pathways, um, but haven't connected one-on-one -on -one very closely because we haven't really been working very closely. But this podcast is a cool opportunity for us to connect. And, and yeah, I think you and I think very similarly about what it means to be an English teacher. So I'm really glad that you're on the podcast. Mm -hmm. One thing that I wanted that... Um, when you were talking about the differences in, in rural education, and this is probably uh, a topic that's its own entire episode, but thinking about the differences between Mark Tree and Earl, um, I appreciate that you brought that up because Mark Tree uh, is almost, it's almost 50% white students and 50% black or African-American students. It's not completely that, um, but that, you know, it's really sort of on the border. If you look at sort of the history, the history of the Delta, it's sort of on the border of like that mm -hmm. white flight from the Delta as you get sort of closer to Jonesboro. And it really always um, struck me as something that we didn't talk enough about, which is like Earl, where you taught 20 minutes down the road, mm -hmm. almost all black and African-American students. Right. Yeah. And you know, the social forces and all the different reasons for, you know, why you see such sort of a, a vastly, and then you go one, one school district up north from Mark Tree in Cross County, it's almost all white. And yeah. so I think 
something that was like very evident to me teaching in the Delta um, is sort of how how rigid and how simultaneously sort of how rigid and how um, I guess unspoken some of yeah. the racial tensions can be and some of the race like the reasons for school segregation which I, I feel like a lot of people are sort of throw their hands up and and kind of talk about how they wish it wasn't this way but the, and they don't really there's no real good solutions offered but I don't know I'm sure you probably noticed that teaching in Earl right Oh, I think in any school, I think Fordyce was similar to Mark Tree a lot in its makeup. And I think in general, this current moment that we're in, uh, you know, talking middle of July with uh, the critical race theory backlash, I'm sure yeah. we'll get to it at a later episode. Uh, it's this unwillingness or reluctance to talk about the way that place in history shapes where we are right now in a lot of ways. And I think in, for us, it was just obvious, like you didn't have to go five generations back, like, like the story of desegregation in Arkansas and the backlash to it, the white flight from it very much shapes the way schools look today. And I think there is, and you're 100% correct, a ton of pushback to talking about that yeah. uh, in, in honest, humble ways. And I think that backlash tends almost exclusively to come from the white communities, mm -hmm. uh, both here, but also in all other parts of the country too. So I think it's something worth exploring. And I, I'm really grateful for being confronted with that as a teacher, because it's important in my perspective and things that I didn't know as much before mm -hmm. I started teaching. Uh, and in terms of being responsive to my students and what they need uh, and trying to create more equitable schools going forward. Yeah. Yeah. There's absolutely nothing. It's the most humbling experience I've ever had in my life, not just being a first year teacher, but sort of stepping into a completely new community. You don't know the dynamics. There's obviously a lot going on that you don't understand. And I think that people um, don't understand how complex I um, what am I trying to say? People don't understand, I think, sometimes how complex and powerful a lot of those social dynamics can be in, in small rural communities. Like I do think people paint rural communities with a really broad brush. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's, it's got me thinking. So um, you talked a little bit about this, but you know, you're stepping into the host role. So why are you excited about coming in and what, why, yeah. Why do you want to be uh, on the pod? Yeah, well, I, I'm a, a podcast, avid podcast li listener, a uh, new dad that podcasts are a blessing in a lot of ways yeah. uh, for a lot of times. But in general, I want to echo what both you and Brandon said in that first episode in terms of prioritizing teacher voice, something that I've always been a proponent of, uh, engaging in the type of conversations that we love to have. Uh, I do think that sometimes those conversations, I think you mentioned like happy hour conversations, those real conversations about teaching I like in the same way with writing and publishing writing, like there's mm -hmm. a le added level of accountability and scrutiny that we enact in ourselves when we know mm -hmm. someone else is going to be listening or reading something. So I think having these conversations and putting them out for the world or the hypothetical audience, fingers crossed that it goes beyond hypothetical, yeah. uh, that it is, there's something of added value uh, in terms of the process and what we get from it. And I think the product as well. Uh, the other thing that I want to add that at least so to be full disclosure, how I enter a lot of these conversations with education is I think both we agree there are myriad paradoxes in education, right? Like there are mm -hmm. look left, right, every up, down, you know, whether it's 
the need to meet students individually where they are versus creating consistent collective norms, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's the urgency we bring into the classroom versus being flexible and supportive, uh, as we talked about maybe a potential episode like teacher self-care versus the investment it takes to make education possible. There are so many paradoxes. For me, unfortunately, a lot of times we don't handle those paradoxes well. I think there's like three ways that paradoxes cannot be handled well that we've probably both seen many times. Uh, number one is to only acknowledge one side of the paradox and just ignore the other part. Uh, the, the second way is to pretend it's not a paradox or it's like, oh no, it works completely. It's not a contradiction at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the third is just to give up and walk away from it and just ignore it. And I think we, none of those are enough for meeting students' needs and being the best teachers and making the best schools possible. So I think the fourth way is to engage with the paradox with humility and mm -hmm. nuance and acknowledge that, yeah, these are contradictions and we need to figure out what's the solution despite these contradictions. And I think with most of the things we talk about, whether it's teacher self-care or critical race theory or what have you, there is some paradoxes underneath them. And I'm really excited to explore those because that's the work. That's what I get excited about. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to dive into it because I really do know from past conversations with you, listening to the first episode with Brandon, like you're both about those paradoxes and meeting them head on too. I think so. And that, I think that that's a good way of thinking about it because I've been you know, sort of watching the whole, I, I think I texted you this today about the Texas Senate bill banning, um, I don't know, like banning Martin Luther King, I think from, or I, I don't know. The bill, I, know I think, just to clarify, I went yeah. and looked into it. The bill, I think, removes it from one thing and puts it in another curricular aspect. So I don't think it's a complete ban, but it definitely is obfuscating and can come across that way. Yeah, I, yeah, it's not a ban. It's removing it. It's removing certain people like King and Chavez as mm -hmm. uh, required, required yeah. text. But anyways, I sort of watching this news unfold and thinking about it as, well, what does this mean for me as a teacher? What's going on? I think the teaching teachers are sort of now in the crosshairs of something that they never really asked for. Mm -hmm. And the, it, like everyone's getting it wrong. Like every single sort of news outlet really, except for, I listened to the other, I listened to the other day, this episode of what a day, which is a, a daily news podcast. And they interviewed a teacher and a school administrator. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> this is the first what a yeah. what a what a wild idea to interview a teacher on a major news outlet and sort of talk to them about what this means because yeah. everyone's getting it wrong and everyone sort of doesn't sort of to me it feels like I think sort of I don't know all the way down, like from parents like individual parents mm -hmm. all the way up to administrators and state level officials and federal elected officials everyone I think a paradox to use your word that comes to mind for me is like everyone sort of has this idea of what education is yeah. like and that idea is really rooted in their own experience right so it's like well when I went through high school this is how it worked and sort of it worked for me so this is what education is this is what it needs to be but no one is really on the same page because all of these debates around what education is and what classroom spaces need to be and what they need to mean first of all those are all different with everyone so yeah. like you and I could be trying to debate some sort of educational policy. And what we don't really understand is you and I actually think that school means two completely different things. Yeah. So that is the first thing. And then the second part of that to me is like, 
not only do individual people have different ideas of what school needs to be and what classrooms are, but also there's not like a real agreement with what they should be moving forward. Like yeah. technology and social media, like, oh, yeah. the classroom is a completely different space than it was even five, six years ago. So any sort of archetype that you have in your mind about what a classroom is and how it needs to function, you, if you are a policymaker or some sort of administrator, you should really um, be more humble is my push <laughs> to, oh. and to elevate teachers and, and ask like what needs to happen as we look forward, especially as we move out of the pandemic. Well, we're also, I think like we're tethered to this construct of education of like, I don't know, and by education history of like, you know, four sections of science, four sections of English, math, and uh, social studies, and all the other, these, this system that has been used for over a century uh, of like, this is what's taught in school. And that was made for that time period. And I think if we were going to a blank slate, uh, tabula rasa, like, mm -hmm. we would not do education the same way right. uh, to meet this current 21st century moment. Especially to think about like we need you know digital literacy and technology information in a much higher priority. I think we agree on, mm -hmm. but uh, I think the other problem though you acknowledge this is that not only are people is their vision of education rooted on their own education experience. That means whenever you try to make a change or progress with making education better for students, if it's different than what their parents or guardians experienced. There's a collision there that makes people uncomfortable, oh, yeah. frustrated. Uh, I mean, we saw that with Common Core and math being taught differently. Uh, and neither of us are math teachers. I think right. we're thankful uh, in that many days. But yeah, that's what Brandon's for. Yeah, we'll bring Brandon on the Common Core <laughs> math stuff. But uh, I think when there's that intersection where education looks and feels different than what the parent or guardian experienced, mm -hmm. uh, it can create a lot of problems. And I think you're right to note that that is one of the foundations. I think it's also important to know, especially as like white educators, that it's not just about educational theory. This also is very much tethered to our country's conversations and identities around race when it comes to critical race theory in particular. But you're right to point out that that tension exists and it's getting louder, not quieter as we move forward. Yeah, yeah. All right, folks. Well, that's the syllabus for the first season of professional development. <laughs> so I hope that you enjoyed the overview. Um, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm excited, Marcus, to have you on. And, and I think I'm excited about the podcast generally. I, you know, it's called, you mentioned the title. It's called professional development sort of tongue in cheek because, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that all professional development is bad, but uh, a lot let's be honest here. A lot of professional development is kind of bad. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been in some of your sessions, Jimmy. Yeah, I, I know. I have a little, led, little, little joke, but I have led some bad professional <laughs> development sessions. I will admit, but I do. One of the reasons that I thought professional development was a good name for the podcast is to honor the fact, right. That a person to person relational conversations like this about big important ideas about education that is legitimate, meaningful professional development. To me, it is some of the most essential professional development, right? And also, there's not a ton of spaces to, for me at least, as a classroom teacher, like there's not a, there's not a ton of spaces to engage as a teacher in some of those big conversations um, uh, in the day-to-day. -day. And, and that's, that's, you know, going back to your, if we could just 
completely redesign education. I think that we would really design education spaces to create the space for adults to really engage in learning rigorously for themselves about what they're doing. I think doctors do that a lot. Lawyers do that a lot. Like that's very expected of them as far as I know to like literally spend a lot of time in the weeds, reading the newest research, understanding how it impacts your practice. And that just takes kind of like a lot of work. Um, and for me, I think it is true that I, you know, I want to engage in those conversations authentically and like those spaces are around, I guess, is, is what I'm saying. And so that's kind of, for me, one of the ideas behind the podcast. Well, we also probably are both a little bit nostalgic at times for those early years with Teach oh, yeah. for America. Yeah. Uh, and I think we have, we're always, always you know, positive. We all, there's probably conversations to be had around yeah. those formative years, but there were a ton of spaces, both organic and inorganic spaces for those conversations to happen. And I think we both had them with people coming from all sorts of backgrounds, right? You yeah. teach for America, pull them from all over the country, drop them into one space or one state or region. And I think we both benefited immensely from the conversations that were had. And mm -hmm. just like in terms of my, we're both passionate in our identities as educators. Uh, I really do miss at times those conversations that were had. And I'm really excited about the ability to move those conversations going forward, especially now that we have the context of being at a very different stage of our career. Because I think right. a lot of those conversations were had as we were kind of drowning in a way mm -hmm. in just trying to keep our head above water mm -hmm. as educators a lot of the time. And I think now as people, we want to encourage folks, as you mentioned before the, you know, we hopped on the recording, encourage people that there is a lot to be gained from staying in this profession and building this work going forward and trying, we both care a bunch about the profession itself. And that's rooted in that initial word of your title, like professional development. Like we want to develop the profession. We want yeah. teaching profession is incredibly important in this moment. And yeah. Yeah. I want it to be stronger. And I think we both really care about that broader profession and not that this podcast is going to transform anything like speaking with humility, but I think we both have that shared value. And I know Brandon shares that value as well mm -hmm. is what can we do to have the conversations to help move forward? What needs to be spoken about and change to make the profession a better thing for the professionals, but also for the students, most importantly. Yeah. yeah I think that's a good segue into the next um, agenda item, because if we think about, okay, professional development, developing the profession, celebrating teachers. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from remote teaching, but one of the, um, I guess, most acute <laughs> and most immediate lessons that society learned about education was how essential it is. Um, because when you take away the, like, basically when you take away the system just as a childcare system, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, suddenly it's like, it's like suddenly you take away people's oxygen, right? Like a lot of people, I think really quickly realized how much time and space, um, they didn't have anymore once they had to teach from home and once they had to manage their, their own, their own kids from home. So that, that was sort of, I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of books and PhD theses written about that, but um, if, you, if you transition to some of your reflections from remote teaching, 
you know, I think Brandon and I have talked a little bit about looking back from the pandemic, but take us back a little bit to some of your own concrete strategies and skills that you developed in this year, which I am really curious to hear you talk a little bit about what was it like being a, a new teacher at a new district in your first year? I didn't, I didn't know that was, that was, but that had to have been really hard. So I'm interested in hearing about that and just like your own teacher skill set that you developed as a result of the pandemic and teaching on Zoom and that you're sort of looking to transition forward into the fall once we have kids back in person. For sure. Uh, and I think my first thing, uh, trying to relive those uh, early months of trying to prepare for this school year uh, as a new teacher, but one thing it did make easier is that it was kind of new for everyone. We had these new systems. It didn't matter if it was their 30th year teaching in the district or their first year in my case, it was new for everyone. So there was a leveling effect that was helpful. Uh, not to, you know, I just genuinely, we were all starting from the same page as teachers. And I think that's the first thing I reflect upon. But the other thing I really want, I think it's my first and foremost, is teaching remotely made visible a lot of the inequities and obstacles students face daily that are typically invisible to teachers, especially if they're not proactively looking. So the students who were not logging on or the students who are taking care of younger siblings who are dealing with financial hardship or in situations that are really uh, not positive spaces at home that they school is a place to escape from that they were no longer able to go to. Uh, I don't want to forget how visible those were and pretend like they don't exist. So I think my first like broader takeaway is hope, you know, going back in person as we did the end of this last year, going into this new school year that don't forget what it was like to be confronted daily with how many students don't have the same access to education because of their mm -hmm. context and situation uh, and what that means for them as learners and as people and how to best support them. Uh, so that was my broader one. I don't know. Is that yeah, what was can your you reflection? Um, yeah, go for it. I, 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 I appreciate that a lot. I was wondering, can you pin down like a moment? Because I have like five different, yeah. very vivid moments, but that illustrated that to me. But uh, can you pin down a moment when that was really made visible to you? Because I think a lot of people would probably relate to it. Well, I think it was when, uh, for me, the Zoom chat box was a really powerful thing because yeah. it was the first time in my career where, uh, we built the norm of like, you're using the chat to communicate with me throughout the class period. It doesn't matter how large the class is. So you have this running commentary and these are direct messages to teachers a lot of times, uh, as long as they had a public chat as well, but you'd hear, you know, Oh, I am sorry. My, I need to go do something to take care of my grandparent who's living here. Oh, oh my siblings are needing help with their zoom class. So I'm going to be away from the keyboard for five minutes and just again and again and again. And, a, you know, I'd look at the chat transcript and, thinking of all the obstacles students were facing, and that's not to mention, I think what we both probably faced is that the number of students who at times weren't logging in at all. Yep. And uh, it was just really made me rethink what education is and our, how we're serving them. And I know there was a pragmatism of trying to do the best in that moment. And I am proud of some of the stuff we did in that context. I, I don't think it was all negative. I think we did a lot of good things and learned new things, mm -hmm. but sometimes it was just overwhelmed by how many things I took for granted as a teacher that students were, when they were at school, they were fully present 
and not carrying with them what they were really carrying with them. Uh, I think at times it's easy to forget that because as a teacher, you just want to kind of live in the fantasy that they're all 100% engaged in your classroom, in your moment. And I think it's, for me, it was a very real slap in the face of what students are carrying with them and what obstacles that they are walking into the classroom with. And I kind of arrogantly thought I had learned that lesson before that start, before teaching remotely. Mm -hmm. And it was really humbling to have to relearn that in a way that was sobering as a teacher. Yeah. And I don't want to, like, I don't want to lose that sobriety, right? Like I won't, I don't want to walk away from the humility that it takes to be a teacher who's, it's not that you need to know everything, right? It's to be aware of what you don't know mm -hmm. and to be transparent with students about that, that like, so that they hear you say that I know that I don't know everything that you're carrying with you. I do not, I don't know as your teacher, I don't need to know necessarily, like it's not always like my right or privilege to know, but I am aware of what I don't know. And I think it's important for them to hear you say that as their teacher and I don't want to lose that priority going into this new school year. Totally. I think that's, I think that's a great reflection. And, you know, touching, looping back to that idea of paradoxes, right? Like the physical place of the school building. I think, it, I think on the one hand, it's really critical that we have a leveling space like a school building in order to create, uh, it, it the school building eliminates inequity in a lot of ways, right? Like on the one hand, the kids are in the same space. They have the same access to the same Wi-Fi, right? Like there's a, there's, there is this very important like leveling effect yeah. of like a little bit to come into this, to, to come into the school building, but it doesn't erase it doesn't erase all the context uh, of what happens when the kids leave the school building and the, in, in the different experiences that kids have. And yeah, it's totally easy to forget it. I've been, you know, we've been teaching for 10 years and, and when you, when you're in the day-to-day, -day, when you're in the day-to-day -day grind, sort of cranking through exit tickets and getting your grades posted, like, yeah, it's easy. It's very easy to forget um, the the different spaces and the, and the different things that, that students are carrying with them because you see them pretty much when you do see them in person, you see them pretty much generally the same way all the time. They're a lot, if you even if, if you know, the school wears uniforms, <laughs> they're all wearing the same thing and you see them at the same time of day. So yeah, I think that's a cool, um, well, not cool. I think it's a very important uh, thing to realize. And then I think the second major takeaway is to build on that, that I realized was how important I wa it was to make the learning that happened in a given class more accessible to those who couldn't access it, whether mm -hmm. they were in a tough place in that time. They might have been there, logged on. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I was logged in as a teacher on January 6th. Doesn't mean I was fully present uh, in yeah. that afternoon because oh, uh, yeah. on the West Coast, it was like it was your teaching class and then second while screen, it was happening, were, yeah. yeah while it's happening yeah but uh you want to make it accessible if they if like they have work responsibilities uh if they have other things happen in their lives where they're not in class because i think both you and i can acknowledge that sometimes as a teacher it's like well you just can't make up for the conversations and what it was like in the classroom as english teachers whether it was a seminar and when we were working online and you uh, for us we use canvas learning in our district i don't know mm -hmm. uh what uh server you guys used but it was 
putting up your lesson, not just a worksheet, but the instructions and the content and the, the actual understanding students need to have. Like I realized I could do more than I think I thought I could before this year, whether it was recording mm -hmm. videos of myself going through the assignments with Screencastify, whether yeah. it was sending more specific feedback to students. And once I got that down mm -hmm. and the systems that it took to create that, uh, I realized that probably for the first time in my career, the vast majority of what we covered in class was way more accessible to st students who wanted to access that material who weren't there. And I, one of my priorities going to the school year is to try and make that continue even once we're back in person, because I think it's still like we talked about with that kind of that first reflection, there are still going to be students who that day, they are not fully engaged and locked in for a host of reasons. There's going to be students who aren't physically present for absences, what have you. And my responsibility as a teacher, as much as possible, given constraints and time, which I know is a probably a a series of podcasts. Yeah, that's the whole, that's the uh, whole profession yeah. right there. It, but is to try and make it accessible, even for students who weren't there in person, whether yep. it's there, there or uh, physically there. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit more about Screencastify. Now I've never, I've never actually used okay. it. I've heard about it, but I do think, cause I, what I'm interested in is thinking about uh, for me, my own feedback systems, right? Mm -hmm. Like I know, like basically every teacher, one of the major problems that I think every teacher needs to figure out is like, how can you get the most detailed feedback to the students in a, in a way that is efficient, right? Like mm -hmm. not every essay is going to have three comments per page on it because I don't have time, right? Yeah. I'm going to read your essay and I'm going to tell you if it's an A, B, C, or D, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but sometimes I, I can go line by line. And, and so, yeah, I'm really, I'm interested, especially English teacher to English teacher, what are your thoughts as you move next year for some of your, your feedback systems? And how is that coming from specific tools or things that you use in, in the pandemic? Well, I, to put a pin on the the essay conversation, because I think you and I could go back and forth about essays, and that actually might be where we have some pivot points between us yeah. about how we approach them in our classrooms and in feedback. But to go taking a step back to just general feedback, uh, I Screencastify essentially is uh, an extension on Google Chrome, and yeah. it's free uh, as long as your videos are under five minutes. Some districts purchase the broader version, but actually five minutes is a good regulator for my long-windedness that I'm sure you share at times. I do, yeah. Uh, All English students, teachers, I think. Yeah, I think your students would probably be as open about that as mine are to me. But essentially- I mean, we're both doing a long-form conversational podcast, so it's right up our alley. Yeah, I think that the, the game is up. Yeah. But uh, essentially, it allows you to record your screen for free mm -hmm. with one click, you can put yourself in the corner of the screen, uh, video, you don't have to, or you yep. can have yourself be the entire screen. And for me, this was on the front end. So if I posted an assignment, I would also try to post a screencastify of me explaining the assignment the same way I did in class or on the backside in terms of feedback, uh, instead of just typing and writing comments, which takes a lot of time, students, some of them at the end of the year said the best feedback they got was when I would walk through their essay or walk through their assignment and give that feedback through Screencastify. And then I usually, I think as we both understand, it's important to have, give students time and space to engage with the feedback. So mm -hmm. if it's just 
a bunch of feedback written on a paper. Like I, I can remember students uh, like where you write, you know, first year, second year, you spend like a whole week in grading essays. You write these long comments, you pass them back. Yeah. And then you see that you can watch the students, right? Some of them get them and either stuff them in the backpack or oh, yeah. them trash can on the way out the door. Uh, and it's just, you need to create the space for the feedback to be engaged with, with students. And I think yep. Screencastify and a lot of other digital tools made that more accessible to students. And I'm excited to build on that going forward. Yeah. Let's, I, I, um, let's dig into the essay approach a little okay. bit. I don't think we, we planned on that, but I am, I'm really curious. And I think it's worth mentioning because yeah, my, um, I am right now in the middle. I think a lot of teachers are sort of, thinking about their feedback systems because for me you need to commit right like you need you need in September when you come back you need to commit to a system you need to commit to a routine because you need to communicate it to students and that the students need to expect this is the rhythm of the essay cycle or at least for me like that I think students need to understand not only where they are in the drafting process but also what what the feedback is that they're expecting because I think you know, in an ideal world, all of our students are like writing for something that's not the grade, but all students are writing for the grade. So they need to know, right? So what, what, um, yeah, t- tell me about your approach to essays and how that works. Well, I think a lot of it happens before the year starts, because I agree mm-hmm. with you that you need to present a consistent system. And I also, I'm a big believer, and this, I guess, ties back to those TFA roots, uh, I have to admit, of it's incumbent upon me as a teacher to be able to tell students, tell parents, tell my administrators, these, this is how my students have grown over the course of the year. Yeah. As a writer, that's especially important. Like I, I, the most, sometimes the most powerful feedback I get from students at the end of the year is like, they feel like they have grown as a writer. And like, cause we both know how that opens doors for them going forward uh, beyond just like the English class, but in terms of their life experience. Right. So uh, having for me, designing powerful, engaging rubrics that are efficient for them that they can understand that can be consistent across the year. And I teach AP literature for some of my classes. So that rubric's more handed to me. Uh, oh, yeah. by I teach AP Lang. So, okay, so yeah, similar. Rubric. Yeah. So I operate with that rubric and we spent yeah. a lot of times at the beginning of the year, Hey, here's some sample essays. They're, in, you're, they're working through processes where they use the rubric on those samples. We talk about the rubric so they understand it. Cause for me, the rubric is a means of accountability of me to them, where if a student gets an essay back, it's not about, oh, A, B, C. It's that you got this score on the rubric here for this mm-hmm. category. You got this score for your argument. You got this score for the way your ideas are organized. You got this score for your language usage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a student can look at the descriptions in the rubric and yep. say, oh, actually, what my essay did aligns more like this. And I've raised students' grades after the fact. And it, mm-hmm. so I'm trying to give them a tool to communicate back with me, going back to that feedback and engagement. I want to give them something that's accessible to them that I can use throughout the year because then I can track growth because it's not about punitive measures. It's about the ability to celebrate growth and you can't celebrate growth that you haven't been looking for. Mm -hmm. And to have a system where you start with your diagnostic essay and then you work your way forward with different essays throughout the year and they can be in different contexts and different styles. But if it's a rubric that's broad enough that can fit all those styles, you can show students the growth and what a powerful thing it is like to have on the wall or to have on the screen, hey, here's where you guys were at in September. Here's where you're at in November. And to see that class growth, but then to also communicate with students and more importantly, for students to be able to communicate themselves, here is how I've grown. 
I think that should be a priority for all teachers. It's really hard to do. And I think it takes experience to get to the point where you can implement those systems. But that is my priority is it's rubric based. Uh, everything about essays is tied back to rubrics. What about yeah. you? I think, I think it's very similar. I think my, a, a lot of my, um, I've definitely evolved. Like I think when I, when I started out and, you know, you and I are talking about essays, but yeah. I think, I think, and I hope like this conversation is transferable to a lot of teachers because what we're really talking about is summative assignments, right? So yeah. like this could be true for a lab report in biology. This could be true for any history paper, right? Like I, I, this idea of summative assignments and, and growth over time, I think is something that is at the core of, of every teacher's classroom. But yeah, it used to, I used to say, okay, you have, I, first of all, I grade everything out of a hundred. Like everything is a hundred percent for me. It's just kind of stickier for students. Um, so like um, essay exit tickets, any, everything from like a classwork exit ticket, one paragraph type of thing, all the way up to a sum of assignments. Um, it's all out of a hundred. And that's not, um, if you understand like, well, you only get three essays per quarter and those are weighted way more heavily than the 20 exit tickets in the quarter, right? Like for me, there's just something a lot to be said for a student saying, and the reason I went into that was I found students not to be really internalizing the feedback if you tell them, well, you got like a, like a 17 out of 22 on this essay because um, they're like that, to me, that's not very meaningful. So I literally, it's just like, well, the math doesn't matter. And a student wants to know, okay, did you get a 75? Did you get an 85? Like that's what they're, it's immediately connecting to the GPA. So removing that barrier. Um, and so what I do, for example, on the AP Lang rubric, does lit use the six point rubric where it's one, four, one? Yeah. Yes, it does. So what I yes. do is, what I do is generally I'll say, okay, it's the essay is graded out six points. And my, my friend of mine who teaches uh, AP stats got me onto this, uh, is giving us, it's I given a square root curve. So if a, you take the square root of a student's raw score, which this is like math that I don't explain to students because it's boring, but it works really well for the rubrics. If a student gets um, a three out of six on the AP Lang rubric, for example, which is generally in passing for the call, like that's kind of what you're looking for to earn a three or higher, right? It's not exact, but that's kind of where, where sort of the baseline I try to shoot for is. If a student gets a three out of six on that rubric, that raw number is 0.5 and the square root of 0.5 is 0.71, right? So I just tell, and I do explain this at the beginning of the year and a student will know, okay, three out of six on the rubric is, is, is gonna give me a 71. Mm -hmm. They get that essay back. And after, after the, um, after the final scores are back, so if, if you you have basically for every essay, and this was something that I started doing at the end of the pandemic, which was a little bit more work, but because I sort of knew the systems and I was really efficient with scoring essays and stuff, it allowed me to do this, which I think was really investing. You turn an essay into me, it gets a, it gets a three out of six, so you get a 71%. You have until the end of the quarter to revise that essay, and I'll give you half of those lost points back. And I'll just go back and change the grade. If you revise the essay and you take the feedback and you can demonstrate growth on this very specific assignment, um, for me, grades are not really totally final, 
until like the last, I, I actually, t- I, t- you know, I tell students like you have a week, you have to get these, t- these kinds of revisions to me uh, a week before the end of the quarter, but it's pretty quick for me, right? To be able to take a look at the essay, say, yes, you've made this growth. You've done this thing to improve your score. So I'm just going to give you half of your lost points back. And I had uh, some students, it, it, some students were like, all right, I got a 71. That's all I want on the essay. And I'm like, all right, well, hopefully you do better next time. But I had a bunch of students that would say they would get a, they would get a five out of six on the rubric. And I, they would, which is, I think uh, the square root of, I think it was like a 91 or something. I forget the number, but I would give them, I would give them a 96 if they did the revision because you're taking the time, you're trying to grow. And so I think yeah, creating that system, especially on the big, most important assignments in the quarter, creating that system where you you have the rubric, you have the feedback, but also there needs to be a very clear, to me, I think, especially as a writer, there needs to be a very clear, concrete um, way to improve on that assignment or otherwise it becomes very disinvesting. And that's when you get the stuff that's sort of thrown in the backpack and, and they don't really engage with the feedback. No, I agree with that. And I actually like that system. There's always, I'm trying to stay present, but there's the part of me that goes into planning mode. Like how can I incorporate some of the, especially the revision system. And cause we have our own ways of, you know, adjusting the grade so that it yeah. fits into the ABC category that right. end up on the report card. But because, uh, for instance, on mine, and we won't get too nitty gritty with the AP stuff. Like, I take the six point rubric. Does yours include like language is embedded? It doesn't have its own category. Yeah. I pull it out and yeah. create my own category for it so that I can give students feedback on it. So it's an eight point, and yeah. then I just do two points for outline, and so it ends up about ten. Easy. Yeah. I've, but I've been doing, I, I've thought of the same thing. I think I'm going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so it just, it just, it was we're separate conversation, but yeah, no, here's my just, question for you. I have yeah, something I want to, I want to put something on the docket for you. How do you feel about exemplars? Because I'm a, I'm a Kelly Gallagher aficionado is like, he's like my idol. Uh, and I, my teaching has changed since I've really prioritized exemplars and giving students more access to those exemplars. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on exemplars, especially around essays? But it, this again applies to a lot of summative assessments. Yeah. Do you, should students have access to exemplars for everything they do? Yes. Can't teach without them. Okay. Hundred percent. I start every unit with the exemplar. So okay. in AP Lang, yeah, I start every unit with with the exemplar, and I you front load the exemplars. And I understand there's some hesitancy, right? Like I think people are like, well, if you're sort of giving the student the answer, yeah. Yeah, you are. Yeah, give them the answer. To me, I think uh, writing not just in not just in the English context, but writing to me is a visual process. I was a creative writing major in college, and I feel pretty strongly about this. I write a lot. It's literally a visual process. A student needs to scan through. If you're expecting them to have a five-page essay, they need to scan and look at what five pages looks like in order to wrap their head around sort of the amount of work and the amount of complexity that you're expecting. So for me, AP, this may be a little bit different with Lang and literature, because for me, I'm able to use powerful exemplars. It's it's very similar to like the same type of math problem, but using different numbers, right? Yeah. So like my, the exemplar, if I'm, t- if I'm rolling out a rhetorical analysis unit, I could present to them, for example, the an exemplar rhetorical analysis essay of Letter from a Birmingham Jail, which um, 
apparently Texas thinks is really bad. Um, so I, I, I give them the text, right? Letter from Birmingham jail. They, we read that, we have class discussions about that. And then I give them the, the exemplar rhetorical analysis essay, right? So it's like, if you are taking a scholarly approach, you're trying to break down Martin Luther King here, this is how you would do it at the highest possible level. Then you break down why that essay is, what that author is doing, what it's doing, or is doing what they're doing, and why it why it's an exemplar, basically, exemplar analysis. Once you once the students have done that, I then can switch out the rhetoric. I can give them a new a new piece of reading, a new speech, because the great thing about AP Lang is a lot of the a lot of the texts that we read are like pretty short. Um, so it's a constant sort of rotation of that cycle where you have the you root you're rooted in the exemplar essay. The kids know what a rhetorical analysis essay is supposed to do, um, but yeah, because it's a skill based, right? Like that's sort of the difference between knowledge and skills. Like knowledge of Birmingham Jail would be the ability to recall from memory the various different metaphors and, and sort of line by line type of stuff that King is going after in the speech. But what you're, what, what you're really after in rhetorical analysis is, is skill building, right? Yeah. And can the kids, can you create that transferable set of skills? So you can, for me, I can't teach without them. I start immediately with the exemplars. And the nice thing about teaching AP Lang is you're really not giving away any of those answers or anything like that because the kids then have to replicate those skills using a different text which you know you have different levels of scaffolding for in order for them to comprehend. But yeah, I lit, first day of day day one of the unit or day two or whatever the cycle is like, start immediately with the exemplar and do not waste any time. It's the most to me, it's the most essential thing to start with. Yeah, and I think I'd add for teachers listening, like the teacher created exemplar is ideal because <laughs> especially if you're designing an assessment it's incumbent upon you to be able to write the exemplar or create the exemplar if it's a different class or math, what have you. Uh, and by doing that, by going through that process, you have a better understanding of what you're asking students. You catch mistakes, you catch flaws in the assignment. And I think that I would always advocate for teachers, create your own exemplars and, and hold yourself accountable to that. Like you're a master of the skill that you're teaching. Yeah. Uh, and for me, when students are given an assessment, they have access to the exemplar. They also have access to the rubric. And it doesn't matter if it's a constructed response on a unit exam or if it's a longer essay. And I think that there is this mindset that you're right, that, oh, I'm giving away the answer. And it's one, if you use the exemplars correctly or not, mm -hmm. two, that's how life is in terms oh, of yeah. preparing them for 21st century skills. Like yeah. uh, you hear all the time, oh, they don't teach us how to do taxes in school. I'm like, well, yeah, when, when I, I didn't learn how to do taxes, when I had to fill out taxes the first time I went and found an exemplar, here's what a filled out tax form looks like. Yep. And I use that to teach myself how to do it. Yep. So if you can get, build student confidence in working from exemplars to teach themselves and use that as a model to work towards, that is a transferable skill that goes way beyond the English classroom. So I, I'm a, just, I'm right aligned with you. Exemplars are imperative for being the best teachers we can for students. I totally, yeah. How did you, how did you do that? Uh, like how, how are you thinking about um, sort of pivoting into the fall? How did you use example? Because to me, right, like an exemplar is literally copied <laughs> and the kids take it when they walk into the classroom. For me, a major challenge in remote instruction was, all right, 
I've posted the exemplar on Google Classroom. It's okay. a PDF. Um, read it. <laughs> you know, hopefully you read it and understand it, right? Um, and that was a huge, that was a, probably one of the biggest barriers that I had for uh, in remote instruction was my abil- my own ability to manage the kids' literal comprehension of the exemplars. Yeah. Because when, you do, when, you, when you're in the classroom, you give them the remote, you give them the handout. They're there with you. You can see them. You give them, you give them the exemplar and you say, Kyle, what, did the, what does this student say? How does the student open the second paragraph? Why is that effective? You can kind of do that in Zoom, but there's a lot of communication lag and there's so many other issues on Zoom. Like I found that my ability to manage the student's comprehension of the ex- whatever exemplars I was posting was very limited. And that was like a huge challenge that I really didn't uh, get over. But yeah, I'm curious about, is there anything from remote teaching that uh, using the exemplars beyond just like a shared Google Drive or something like how are yeah. you thinking about this for the fall? Well, I think it's for me, and this actually goes something that I feel pretty confident about even before Zoom learning. And I'm going to use example that's not AP related because I yeah. think it's more transferable, but I do something similar with AP at a different level. But I feel like it's important to build systems in which students interact with exemplars. So let's say, for example, I'm teaching a unit over RL1 skill, which is, yeah, I, you know, Typically, if you're ninth and 10th grade, it's mm. uh, using textual evidence to support your idea and examining yeah. what's left out of the textual evidence. If you go to the 11th and 12th, again, this is getting into the nitty gritty. But yeah. the point is, I'm asking students to read a text and respond to it with their own ideas, supporting it with evidence. And I give them as a diagnostic, I probably don't give, I don't tend to give the, uh, at the beginning of a unit, the exemplar until they've tried the diagnostic without it, yeah. sometimes with you. Uh, then I go through them and I take all those student works. And this is where if they submit it digitally, this is a quick process. I pull out ones that show at each score level. So a lot of times if it's a constructed response, it's just one score on the rubric, either proficient or close or below or exceeding. And then I put those around the wall in a gallery walk. Also, if it was on Zoom, they had four copies available to them on a document they could access. I could see who hopped onto the document. Mm-hmm. And then they had to go through and grade those documents themselves with the rubric and talk with each other about with their, in their small groups, yeah. which one deserves which grade and why. I could ask them questions about it. And then once they were done with that, another thing they would do often is color code the different things. So if I'm looking for, here's the claim, here's the evidence, here's the analysis, for instance, those would be color coded differently. They could have their own document that they made a copy of where they did the color coding. But the key thing is taking the time in your space as a teacher to let them interact with the uh, exemplar, let them interact with the student examples. And they didn't know who wrote what. They just saw Mm -hmm. these blank type documents. And then they would go through that process with their own. So then they have become masters of the rubric at that point. And I think the hard thing as a teacher is the time crunch, right? You're like, well, I'm supposed to be teaching this new skill, but I'm spending this whole class lesson reviewing this skill with exemplars. And you have to, you're so much better off. I believe this strongly Mm -hmm. prioritizing what standards really matter. What standards are the key things from your course that you need students to learn, as opposed to just running a rat race of checking off 5,000 different small things that kids Mm -hmm. are going to forget quite often. If they don't master something, it's not going to last. So I think it's the whole philosophy around priority standards or the essential standards movement. Uh, the idea 
that you need to know within your curriculum, not just what standards you're supposed to cover, but what are your priorities? And yeah. then that should dictate how you design your curricular map. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I, I, I totally, I'm, I think we're really on the same page here. Yeah. One thing that I would say just to sort of make it transferable and sticky for anyone who's listening, especially newer teachers, right? Yeah. Give yourself permission as you're listening to this conversation, give yourself permission to slow down, especially in the quarter one, right? Like it's, I know it's going to feel rushed and I hope that no one has some sort of administrative or coaching conversation that tells them that you're going too fast. You need to speed it up. Like, especially in the humanities, anything that involves writing, give yourself permission I mean, I'm sure this is probably true in like computer science and, and math skills. Just I want all teachers to give them, themselves permission to go really slow, especially in the first quarter. Like what are the most essential things? Slow down in the quarter one. Really give students the time and space to engage with that on because on like a deep level and make sure that they can build a set of transferable skills and expectations because once you have that, I think I've been really amazed at if I really nail quarter one because I've gone slow and I've like taken my time and students know, like the, basically the rest of the school year is if that's when I've had my most successful school years, yeah. um, you know. Well, I think also I would add on to advice to all teachers, but especially newer teachers is really spend time with your curriculum map or your standards list, whatever. There's all these terms that get thrown around. Sometimes people mean different things by the saying the same thing. But if there's a list of here's all the things you're supposed to teach in a given year, spend time with that and go through and think to yourself, which of these things are most purposeful to students in their future years, uh, the, the classes to come, just in life in general. Because number one, for any class you're teaching, your, your job as a teacher, not only is to teach the content that is assigned to you, that's your job, but two, to be able to convey why this matters to students. And I, I think both of us chose English because we feel like that's a really easy conversation to have. Like, I think we feel very purposeful about the work we're doing in terms of these skills matter in a thousand ways, right. but you should go through those lists and think to yourself, not just how do I teach this, but why does this matter and how do I communicate that priority to students? Two, I think it's also important to, if you're not sure which of them matters the most, especially as a new teacher, go ask, you know, first year Marcus call wise, all knowing Jimmy second year. Hey, I've got my standard list. Which of these standards matter the most? And by taking that time at the start of the year, before you even design what you're going to teach and when that I think gets skipped so, so often. I have skipped that process way too often because it's so easy to be like, oh, here's the list of what I'm teaching. I'm just going to go with what has been provided and not authentically engaging with that list of skills, because that's the foundation of everything, right? You build a house on quicksand, it falls apart. If you don't understand what the actual skills are that you're teaching at a mastery level, everything else is kind of just like destined to fall apart at some point. Yeah. One thing that I would add to that, that has helped me prioritize those skills is to not think about your classroom in terms of days or weeks or months Um, because I think it's easy at the beginning of a unit to be like okay uh, 
for these six weeks, right, we're going to have all of these like amazing, like you really kind of sort of let your imagination go wild with all the amazing things you can do because you're like, okay, well, I've got six weeks, I can get this stuff done. You are the, you as an individual, uh, if that's, you're only thinking about that for, for you maybe for six weeks, but the kids have seven other classes, right? And once you start thinking about your course for those six weeks in the terms of like 30 hours instead and, and thinking about, okay, for this unit, if I expect, if I expect, you know, five hours per week <laughs> is 30 hours over the course of six weeks, plus let's, let's generously call it 10 hours of homework, right? What, what is, you know, once you start budgeting your time for a particular unit in terms of hours and not days or weeks or whatever, it really, I think, helps you be a lot more concrete and a lot of things start immediately going off the chopping block once you're thinking on that level. Yeah. And again, the other thing is document everything. Like I have a Google Drive manifesto of a decade now of things and items that, because I think so often if you don't document your planning work, if you don't document your plan, your, your schedule of what you're trying to teach. And a lot of times you have this plan. I'm going to teach this, 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 and this on these days, even if you've gone through this authentic process we're talking about, and then the school year happens and everything changes, but you, you can't reflect upon something that you don't have. And I think it's really imperative that you are being intentional about documenting as much as possible in an organized system that you can come back to at times. Because the worst feeling yeah. as a first-year teacher after going through the whole school year is realizing going into year two that you have to start from scratch because you yeah. didn't document anything or you have no idea. You're yeah. like, oh, let's start, let's start this over. The more you document it, in the same way that we want students to engage with their essay after they've got their feedback on it, like the yeah. students work on your class in, yeah. in their performance in your class. That's your feedback. Mm-hmm. It's your responsibility as an educator to engage with that feedback. And I think part of the engagement is having your plans and being able to look at them and see what worked, what didn't work and what needs to be changed. Yeah, totally agree. Um, Marcus, let's, yeah. let's start winding <laughs> this down. This was, this was a, this was a great conversation. And what one sort of quick thought that I have about this is it's interesting to me how much we actually did not talk about uh, remote technology, like remote learning and technical tools, because that stuff is not, you know, that sort of flash and not substance, right? Like there is, I think there's, there's an interesting um, sort of set of skills and tools and tips and tricks that like, I think I was sort of forced to develop over the course of the pandemic. Uh, but at the end of the day, like the same ideas of routines and exemplar systems and, and like, you know, building time and space for kids to uh, engage with the mastery of what the top level essay looks like, that didn't change in the pandemic. And it's certainly not going to change. It's certainly not going to change for me uh, in the fall. I think a lot of, I think I've heard anecdotally sort of with other conversations with administrators, like, um, you know, what do you, we need to learn our lessons from the pandemic. And I think we do need to learn a lot of lessons from the pandemic. And I'm hoping that that sort of going back in person, like school systems will start to evolve and look differently as a result of like the societal sort of pause. But there's a lot of stuff 
that didn't go away. There's a lot of there's a lot of important pedagogy that never went away in the pandemic, and it shouldn't go away in the fall. And one thing I'll add, and this is something I was very fortunate as an educator that is going away, uh, that I think I need to make sure I name is that in our district, they go into the pandemic uh, negotiate that Mondays would be a day for teachers to plan out their week, knowing the added planning that will happen for the student learning mm. uh, with online remote learning. And as a teacher being given the time to do that work at work, as yeah. opposed to when it often happens is like, I don't put my son to bed. Okay. It's 8 PM. Now I need to like, it's harder to summon the time and energy when you're outside of your work hours, right? A lot of mm -hmm. teachers across the country put in hours upon hours of time investing outside the work hours. When you give teachers the time to do that work during the day, mm -hmm. uh, really do that work. And then you set expectations and you like really hold them accountable to it. I believe should also be part of that package. Uh, it's amazing how I felt as an educator being given that time. And I'm going to lose, like we're going back to the five day, you know, kids yep. coming back. And I understand for reasons why we're doing that, but what, a year it was to experience what it would be like to be given the time to do my job at work. And I think yeah. oh, I, yeah. that was year nine for the first time I can say that. And I think year 10, I won't be able to say that. And that's just probably how it'll be going forward. But I just wanted to pin that because that matters. And if we're taking big picture about what it means to really honor the profession of teaching, yeah. part of that honoring is giving teachers the time to do their work professionally in the time for which they're being compensated. Yeah. Uh, I wish there was like an orchestra playing or something. <laughs> that's, it's, yeah, it's, I agree. I agree so much with that. I'm angry about it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm smiling, but there's like this inner flame. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I, it, like that's, yeah, it's, 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 uh, I feel like I'm just so jaded and bitter about that. But um, yeah, I've literally in my, I've, I've met basically no administrator. <laughs> yeah. I'm not trying to be too negative here, but I have met extremely few administrators or coaches or instructional leaders who, who speak to me in a compelling way about honoring the amount of intellectual prep time that yeah. is required. Um, I think that's the, that's the first thing to be underestimated in terms of the job of a teacher. It does take time just because you're like silent in your room alone does not, that's some of the most important time that you have as a teacher and, and any administrator who is listening to this, I hope that you just maximize that time for all teachers this year as much as you can. I understand there's budget concerns or whatever, but yeah. it's the most, it's the most important thing. And I'll One advocate of, just to add on accountability with that time. Like, I don't think there's yep. a problem. And I think if teachers are upset about accountability, sometimes unnecessarily, yeah. like of saying, Hey, Jimmy, you get this afternoon once a week to plan out the rest of the week. And you're going to send an email to your supervisor. You're going to document, here's how you use that time. Like, sure. like that's one kind of doing that anyways, if you're doing the work well Two, like, that's fine. That's worth the deal. Like, yeah. Oh, like yeah. I think teachers, a lot of times, on the flip side, not to criticize all teachers, but sometimes don't want the accountability that comes front with what they're asking for. Like, and I, yeah. I think as professionals, that part of being a professional is understanding that there is accountability that comes with this job. If we really believe in the urgency of this work, we shouldn't have a problem if, as long as it's fair, respectful accountability, like mm -hmm. that's part of the job. Yeah, I agree. I'd take that deal any day. Okay. <laughs> um, 
All right. So one, this is going to be the first time we've done this, but I think uh, it's kind of a cool idea. And you talked a little bit about her, I think, at the beginning of the yeah. episode. So maybe it'll be her, but we're going to start uh, closing the show by just talking about a teacher who was really important to us. Uh, someone who changed your life or inspired you or, um, yeah. What do, if you have a teacher in mind that you want to talk about and why they were so great, uh, take it away. Oh, yeah. So I'm just going to circle back to the reference I made way back uh, at the beginning of this conversation to Mrs. Walker, fifth grade, Sam Case Elementary, Newport, Oregon. I do the full shout out. Uh, And so Mrs. Walker, along with just being the exemplar of what a professional loving teacher is in terms of her classroom space and the urgency, even in a fifth grade classroom that you was just automatic the moment you walked in. At the end of the year, she would write down for each student, and she would say this out loud to the whole class of, here's what you're good at, here is what I could see you doing. Not in a limiting way, like she found something to affirm about every single student in that classroom uh, and set it in front. And I think it wasn't just for me, and obviously I am literally following the path that she said back in fifth grade, way back wow. when, but in general, what it means for students to hear people affirm their strengths and the idea of affirmation as the way you close your year is a part of like my classroom culture, what I strive for. Uh, it was just like, I cannot overstate how important that moment was in terms of, for me, shaping my vision of what education can be. And I know watching the faces of students who were told, you demonstrate incredible compassion to the people around you in your group. And it shows that you're someone who can help people and wants to help people. I remember, I can, I'm not going to name the name, but I remember which student was told that way back in fifth grade. That's a long time ago. We're getting old, right? Like, mm-hmm. and how formative it can be to affirm someone and how life-changing it is. So like this idea of affirmation as a teacher, as a foundational aspect to your classroom, that goes way back to Mrs. Walker for me. And I just, from the deepest part of my soul, thank you for helping me arrive where I am and doing what I'm doing. So thank you, Mrs. Walker. I love that, man. Thanks for sharing. Um, All right, friends, that's going to close it out for us today. Marcus, thank you so much for being a part of this. I'm excited to see where it goes. Um, And yeah, that's it for us. So have a good one and we'll see you next time. Bye. I I never really know how to end these things, but oh yeah, there's the recording button.